Carry On Christmas, a Derek Playfair mystery, written and narrated by Sir Desmond Sterling. Chapter One I stepped off the train and took a deep breath. Even through the smuts of the steam, I could smell the nearby sea. Groovy. There were no cabs waiting on the concourse outside the station, so I arranged for my luggage to be delivered to my hotel and decided to take a brisk walk. A glimpse of the sea first, check into the hotel, then on to the Hamilton Dean Memorial Theatre, where my old chum and client, Compton Ponsfoot, was about to give his dame in panto. Mother Goose in Heelmouth wasn't the hottest of dates for an actor, but Ponsfoot's star had long waned thanks to a liking for the sauce and one gruesome indecency charge too many. But I dig the old boy, who has been on my book since the agency first opened, and I can hardly take a moral stance on Compton, where my own rampant libido has got me into hot water on many an occasion. Hillmouth is a small seaside town which hardly bursts with tourists at the height of the season, but even so, my heart sank at the sight of the high street, paltry decorations dangling forlornly overhead, the battleship grey sky didn't help, but the few shoppers were hardly glowing with festive cheer as they scuttled from shop to shop. The 1970s may have only recently started, but I felt as though that as I disembarked from the train, I was now back in those grim days of post-war 1950s, when fun was strictly frowned upon, and free love could end up costing you a lot of bread. I admit I felt rather guilty about poor old Ponsfoot spending the Yuletide season in this dump. It wouldn't help the old boy in his pledge to stay clear of the booze either. I'd only been in town for ten minutes and was craving a stiff one. I trolled down to the seafront to take in some tokes of ozone, but the wind threatened to blast my fro to smithereens, so I checked into my hotel, a somewhat crumbling pile on the seafront, rather misleadingly called The Grand. Inside was, surprisingly, better than its exterior threatened. True, the decor was supremely unhip, with well-worn carpets, dented suits of armour, tarnished horse brasses, and wallpaper that Mary Whitehouse would choose. But as pads go, it, it could have been worse. I ought to give them the name of my personal interior designer, Butch McGonagall, let him freak out with some lava lamps and hessian wallpaper, and the place could be seriously cool. The foyer was dominated by an enormous Christmas tree, swathed with decorations which looked to my trained eye like genuine antiques. I briefly wondered if they'd miss any if I got sticky-fingered. The receptionist, an old woman with terrifying eyebrows and her hair scraped brutally back, looked at me without the hint of a smile. Derek Playfair, I informed her. Theatrical agent and playboy adventurer. You have a room for me? She looked at her ledger. Oh yes, Mr Playfair, she said. Just the two nights? Oh yes, I thought. I was planning to skedaddle pretty damn pronto the following evening, immediately after the dress rehearsal, but I booked an extra night so I didn't have to check out too early. I'd feared the worst for my room, but frankly, I've slept in worse pits. A pleasingly large bed, and one never knows when that might come in useful. 
particularly when actresses are far from home. The view of the sea in its grim majesty was very acceptable. No one sweet, but I don't mind a shared bathroom. One never knew whom one might encounter when nature calls in the middle of the night. My luggage was waiting for me, but I decided not to unpack. Rather, I thought I'd check out the bar. A quick snifter after enduring British Rail and before meeting old Ponsfoot. After all, it wouldn't be fair to knock them back when he's on the wagon. I took a quick glance at myself in the mirror to make sure I wasn't looking too travel-weary. I was rather pleased with what I saw. A man in his fifties who could pass for younger. Broad shoulders, a lithe waist, my hair, by Maurice of Frith Street, an ornately sculptured moustache and sideburns revealing flickers of grey, enough to give me a hint of distinction without being too ageing. I was dressed pretty casually for me, orange flared corduroys, an old Mr Haddock shirt, and my winter coat made of from genuine Ecuadorian poodle fur. The ladies of Heelmouth didn't know what was going to hit them. The hotel bar was gloomy and dark, wood-panelled, the sort where one could lurk in the shadows unseen, just as I like. One can observe while avoiding recognition, then descend on anyone who aroused interest. Apart from a few ragged strands of tinsel, and a medium-sized Christmas tree, tilting slightly as though it had had a few, the only other decorations were posters from previous productions of the Hamilton Dean Memorial Theatre, it was surprising how many of the big stars of today had played there. Sid James as Macbeth, Darling Wingard as Toad of Toad Hall, Peggy Mount as Cleopatra. Oh, how I would have dug seeing those magical performances. I rapped on the bar, and a gnome-like barman promptly popped up. What can I get you, sir? He asked in a strong cork accent. Ah, Begora! Top of the morning to you, I cried, immediately putting him at his ease. And what be your man's name? Top tip, always ask a menial's name. It makes them think you care. He told me his name was Dermot, and again asked me what my poison was. I asked for my usual Shinzano and Tizer, whisked, not twirled, and glanced around the bar. I realised I wasn't on my own. A solitary man sat at a table in a dark corner, poring intently over a large and ancient-looking book. I was intrigued, but didn't have the time to strike up a conversation with the curious chap. Dermot handed me my drink and I took a sip. It was excellent, and I commended him. He nodded and scuttled to the further end of the bar, polishing the surface as he went. I glanced again at the cat at the table. His lips moved as he read. I found this initially endearing, until he raised his hands, eyes still glued to the book. And I was convinced I saw a crackle of light dart from one hand to the other. I blinked. And when I opened my eyes, of the man, there was no sign. Where had he gone? He'd had no time to leave the bar. I walked over to his table. No man, no book. Just an acrid smell in the air. Dermot, I called. The barman looked in my direction. Another drink, sir. I shook my head. That guy who was sitting in this corner, did you see him split? 
A puzzled look crinkled the little Irishman's forehead. He stared where I was pointing. What guy, sir? I quelled a pang of impatience. There was a guy sitting at this table reading a book. You must have seen him. The barman shook his head. Sorry, sir, it's very gloomy there and I, I was busy polishing my optics. Probably a guest. I decided not to get too heavy with him or I was going to be late. I gulped down my drink, flung a bob on the counter as his tip and with a final glance at the now empty table, I left the bar. I trolled towards the theatre. Night had fallen since I had arrived. The Christmas lights, shaped like stars, were twinkling half-heartedly or those whose bulbs hadn't blown anyway. The theatre was at the end of the pier. Oldest pier theatre in England, they claimed. But hey, who was I to quibble the toss? The pier was draped with fairy lights. Otherwise, it would have stretched unenticingly into the abyss of the dark sea. I walked along the pier, looking over the side into the black water, where the reflections of the lights were swallowed by the gloom. I had arranged to meet Compton outside the stage door at 5pm. It was behind the theatre at the very tip of the pier. The sea breeze was pretty wild out here and I wondered how many actors had got blown off the end and not in a good way. I checked with the decrepit stage doorkeeper and he assured me the rehearsals had finished five minutes before and that the cast will be out very soon. I propped myself up against the railings and wished I still smoked. A fag would warm up the hands nicely. I didn't have long to wait. With the squawking at ear-rupturing levels so characteristic of mummers, the cast burst out of the stage door, each one competing with the other to be the loudest in their plans for the evening. Frankly, with their dress rehearsal scheduled for the next afternoon, they should by rights be grabbing a light supper and an early evening. I examined them with interest, not entirely for professional reasons. Two young chicks were the first to appear. One was blonde and pretty, in an insipid way, screeching unattractively about nothing in particular, just because she obviously felt that she only existed if she was making a noise. As an agent, I'd encountered so many of the type and had taken great pleasure in saying no to them. Principal girl, I surmised. The other woman was slightly older, saying nothing, looking at the blonde girl with a wry expression on her face, which I couldn't quite read. Was she laughing at the younger woman or lusting after her? She intrigued me, and if I'm honest, I felt the usual playfair twitch in the old pantaloons. I really dig the burn the bra brigade, and going by her demeanour, she was one of them. Principal boy was my guess. They were then joined by a much older cat, a long, lugubrious face, strands of hair plastered over his scalp, a nose like an erupting tomato. He was clutching a large box, Comic, I assumed. Coming to the wimpy, Sparkwell? asked the older woman. A brief look of annoyance crossed the blonde's face, but the older man nodded and the three of them set off. I watched them walk away, but then Compton appeared, swathed in a long lilac scarf with a matching fedora. He saw me, stopped, raised his arms in mock surprise and squealing, did a little soft shoe shuffle, then rushed into my arms. Darling man, you came all this way to the sphincter of England, he cooed. He looked so genuinely pleased to see me that I was glad I'd made the effort. You're looking very dolly. 
Wouldn't have missed it, I told him, quite truthfully. How's it hanging? He pulled a face. Oh, don't ask. Professional concern kicked in. That uncool, eh? I don't know where to start, Compton said dramatically. Save it for supper, I said. Can you recommend anywhere? It's on me, so the best place in town. Compton giggled, all three of his chins wobbling in unison. Sweetheart, this is Heelmouth. There is no best, just least terrible. And for that, it's either the Wimpy Bar or the Chippy on the front. Your fellow cast members have gone to the Wimpy, I said. Chippy it is, then, he replied firmly, and slipped his arm in mine. This way. But I resisted his pull. Another figure had just emerged from the stage door. It was the vanishing man from the hotel bar. Sir Desmond Sterling was written and performed by Anthony Keach.